exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Well, today, as we said, is Christ the King Sunday, and it's the final Sunday of the church's calendar. So next year begins a new church year. We've been journeying together through the story of Christ, and next Sunday, we begin the cycle afresh with Advent. Now, when I say Christ the King, my guess is that what comes to your mind may not be entirely positive, especially coming out of an era of America first politics. Uh, Self-protective, self-sufficient, isolationary politics that lead to consumerism and chaos. Christ the King, Jesus is King, God is King, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Surely that's one of the most prevalent Christian metaphors. But the fact is, though King is surely a biblical metaphor, it's one that has a really checkered history of use in the church. In its earliest days, the church was a collection of marginalized, oppressed people who were under threat of Rome. And so the metaphor of Christ as king was a subversive image. Not Caesar, but Christ. Not violence, but peace. But since the emperor Constantine emblazoned his shield with the cross in 313 AD and won battles in the name of Christ... To this day, Christianity and empire have been welded together, for better, but mostly for worse. Christ the king was meaning that God was with us, not them. It meant God approved of our use of violence to subdue them. It meant hierarchies of every kind, from patriarchy to feudalism, were seen as rooted in the very nature of the cosmos, because Christ too was a king. It meant Christendom was licensed to seize lands, colonize and assimilate indigenous peoples in the name of Jesus. It meant crusades and slavery and racism and misogyny. And today, well, Christ the King may make us cringe as the image is used to back politicians who are anything but disciples of Jesus. It gives us moral majorities. It casts our elections in the language of holy war. Even on a popular level, Christ the King is an image that we may find enables arrogance and division as we think, well, we have the truth and you do not. Our God is King, so we are right. Now, we need to point out that this is an enormous irony because one of the main targets for criticism throughout our scriptures is empire. From the Tower of Babel to Egypt, on to Babylon, Greece, and Rome, empire is always pictured as one of the primary obstacles to a flourishing community of peace. And yet, like Israel under Solomon, Christianity has again and again found itself grasping for the power and the security of empire, 
so now as we are currently in a sermon series about reimagining a community of peace, we need to give careful thought to ways to undo the entwining of Christianity and empire in our time. What if Christ the King doesn't mean Christ has and uses power in just the way that you already imagine power being used, the ways you see power being used all around you? What if Christ the King means that Christ challenges our perceptions of power? Christ reveals what kingship could and must be if we're to find the way of peace. Christ reveals what it looks like to hold power and authority in ways that actually bring flourishing. If in Jesus we find a Christ who radically restructures our ideas of power and authority, this situates us as a people whose reason for being a community is to desire and seek a revolutionary new way of being that emulates the way that Christ is king. I want to say that again. It situates us as a people whose reason for being a community is to desire, to long for, and to seek a revolutionary new way of being that emulates the way that Christ is king. Now, that kind of radical shift of desire does not happen by affirming a statement or believing a doctrine. We are not going to be deeply saturated in an alternate vision of Christ's peaceable kingdom by just trying to believe in it. Because we, all of us, have been steeped in visions of hierarchy and the lure of power from the cradle. So much so that these visions of power are in our very bones. They're in our gut. Empire always has its liturgies that aim to stir up the emotion and the desire of the people so that an allegiance to the nation will always come first. Rome did this. They had triumphal parades. Uh, there was literally the goddess Roma that all the people were meant to worship. Uh, your first allegiance was to Rome. In some situations throughout history, this kind of liturgy, this, this emotional training has been really blunt. Think of torch-lit marches celebrating Hitler or military processions in Soviet Russia or North Korea. It's very obvious what's going on. But sometimes it's a little more subtle. Now, in recent American history, it has not been so subtle. America first is not subtle. But uh, think of any sporting event you've been to. Especially think of like the Super Bowl. Okay, so you're there and you're in a crowd and it's an unruly, everyone's, rah, 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 rah. there's lots of talking going on and there's, you know, there's that team and there's this team and we're not the same people and we hate each other and you're in orange and you're in green. I don't know what teams those would be, but think, you know, there's those two teams, right? And, uh, and, and you're, rah, 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 rah. and then suddenly everyone falls silent and stands to attention as they're invited to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. And uh, everyone stands in unison because this call to worship is invoked. And a spine-tingling performance of the anthem is accompanied by a football field-sized flag rippling as all the volunteers ripple it. And at the climactic moment, F-15s fly overhead and fireworks go off and you literally feel them in your chest. And you think, isn't it good to live in the, the land of the free and the home of the brave? And everyone goes crazy. <laughs> Theologian James K.A. Smith points out that this 
This is a liturgy. It's an embodied ritual that's performed in community aiming to stir up our love for an ultimate good. And the national liturgies that we participate in aim at helping us put America first to make us feel that this is already, right now, one nation with liberty and justice for all. Now, as a side note, I don't have time to go into this, but it would be really interesting to to go down this path. Uh, This gut-level love of America serves a really economic purpose. So one thing you'll notice is all of these American rituals, they're not done by the government. They're done by sponsors like Pepsi, right? They're done by corporate entities because you can't... So last week we talked about consumerism. You can't have a consumerism if you ask too many questions about the justice of a system where we get to consume and consume and consume while the rest of the world has little. Where we take and we take and we pay very little in return to other countries. But if America's first and we have American exceptionalism on our side, we're not going to ask too many questions about that because we deserve it. So the, the intertwining of empire and consumerism is, is really deep. And these liturgies are, are serving to keep that going. But that's another sermon. The point here is not for me, I don't mean to say that America is terrible and we should hate this country and we should all burn our passports. Uh, the point here is to note that we really have been shaped in our guts to believe that America is the best. Uh, And and this American exceptionalism is not taught to us as a concept or an idea, but by embodied practices. And so, as the church, it's not going to be enough to just believe different ideas. We have to get things into our gut as well. We need to circle and ponder and reimagine the way Christ is king, this peaceable king, over years and years to get different intuitions and sensibilities into our hearts and bodies. And this is why we practice the church calendar together. Year after year, we cycle through the story of Jesus, following from promise to birth to suffering and death to resurrection. And this calendar holds us steeping in the stories of this king so that our imagination of kingship and our intuitions about power are able to deconstruct and reconstruct. This is what calendars do. They order our time around a central organizing concept to give us a sense of orientation. What calendar most orients your awareness of the world? Maybe it's the academic calendar. Maybe it's the financial year calendar. Uh, Maybe it's the hallmark calendar of great American feasts of consumption. Uh, It could be work quarters or vacation schedules or sports seasons. These all orient us to high and low times, and they give us a sense about what matters in our lives. The church calendar, Advent, Christmastide, Epiphany, Lent, Holy Week, Eastertide, Ordinary Time, invites us to order our time around the central mysteries of the Christ story. Incarnation, atonement, resurrection, and trinity. And most importantly, this is something we do embodied as a community. Uh, It's not something we think about, it's something that we enact together. We light Advent candles. We decorate Christmas trees. We feel the ashes rubbed into our brow on Ash Wednesday. We experience the growing darkness of Good Friday. We speak, he is risen indeed, together. And we join at our common table and we share bread and wine. 
Reimagining a community of peace is not something we do as individuals or intellectually. Rather, it's a way that we are together that lets us embody a way of being that's not consumerism, but self-giving, not empire, but shared life. So let's take a moment together, and let's just walk through this cycle and look at each of these seasons that we're about to go through in turn. First, the church calendar begins with the mystery of incarnation, God with us, God among us, God entering human life. We start with Advent. In our culture, Advent has gotten sucked into Christmas as four more weeks for decorations and, again, peppermint JoJo's. You might notice I like those. Uh, and Christmas music. And I, and I want four more weeks of that, too, let's be honest. Uh, but in the church calendar, Advent is set aside to name the longing for God to be with us, for God to make ways of peace. As we pay attention to that longing in us, as we listen to those places in us that say things are not yet as they should be, we discover that we desire and long for peace, not only for ourselves, but for all people and for all of creation. So Advent cultivates in us a longing for peace and goodness for all people. And then we come to the 12 days of Christmastide. Too important to be celebrated on just one day, we join Mary before, before the Christ child, and we wonder, how can divinity be pleased to dwell in our flesh? How can it be that our frail and finite dust can be a home for the infinite God? Maybe embodiment in all of its forms is beautiful and a fitting dwelling place for the divine. So Christmas tide cultivates us in us the awe that kingship fully embraces and dwells among the lowest, honors and dignified the frailest, abides within all, even the forgotten. Now, by January 6th, most of us have packed up the Christmas decorations and we're grumbling our way into the chill and dark of winter. Uh, but this day begins the Epiphany, a season dedicated to pondering the mystery that the light of Christ shines on us from the other, from unexpected places. Traditionally, Epiphany is the Feast of the Magi, these wandering foreigners who come to see the Christ child, who stand for all the nations. And we're reminded that God is making a table where all, especially the foreigner, especially the immigrant, have a seat. And it is from their journeys and from their faith that we learn who God is. Epiphany cultivates our awareness that the true king is never the possession of one tribe, but calls all to belong and contribute their wisdom. So... Advent, Christmastide, Epiphany. And with the close of Epiphany, we turn from the mystery of incarnation, God abiding with, among us, and in us, to the mystery of atonement. Now, atonement is a theological word that points us to the mysterious ways that God restores us to relationship with ourselves, with one another, and with the divine life. We've got all sorts of metaphors for atonement. Christ vanquishing death, Christ the new Adam, Christ bearing our sin, Christ restoring union, Christ revealing the infinite forgiving mercy of God. All of these point to a central mystery. God doesn't leave us wandering east of Eden, but pursues and loves us back into life. So beginning with Ash Wednesday, when we resolve to return with all of our hearts to this mystery, Lent is a season of 40 days preceding Easter. 
Traditionally in this season, we follow the life of Jesus, attending especially to Jesus in the wilderness. We find Christ willingly joining our suffering, our exile, our loneliness, our anxiety, and our fear. And through the traditional practices of prayer and meditation, fasting and giving, we clear room in ourselves for rest, restoration, and renewal. Lent cultivates in us an experience that kingship is not demanding or harsh, but enters compassionately into our suffering and darkness, making space for our grief, our uncertainty, and giving us rest. Lent ends with the climactic moment of the Christ story, Holy Week. Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday. This week, we mark each event as Jesus enters Jerusalem, breaks bread and wine to give himself to his people, is arrested, mocked, tortured, crucified, and finally buried. We ponder his resolution and his agonizing. We see him wash feet and feed his betrayer. We see crowds adore him and desert him. And we hear from the tree words of forgiveness and words of surrender. We see our Christ crushed under the wheel of empire, laid in a tomb and extinguished. Through Holy Week, we are drawn to our true king who would rather die than use violence. Whose kingdom is not secured by power, but by self-offering. Who gives himself in order to save even those who betray and desert him. But this is not the end of the story. On Easter Sunday, we rise to celebration and joy as we proclaim, He is risen, He is risen indeed. Easter Tide is a season of seven weeks, beginning with Easter Sunday, that proclaims that atonement is accomplished and turns our eyes to the next central mystery. So we've, we've had in, uh, incarnation, atonement, and now we turn to the central Christian mystery of resurrection. On the one hand, resurrection is a vindication of the way of Jesus. Against an empire that makes peace through violence, Christ makes peace through self-giving. Against an empire that wields power for domination, Christ wields his power for restoration and mercy. The empire does its best to stamp out the radical way of Jesus, but this life is too truly life to be crushed. Resurrection is the vindicating marker that Jesus' ways do make for life and flourishing. But resurrection is more than that. It's also a mystery that embraces every particle and every person, every movement and every moment. Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation because Easter tells us that what God intends for all that exists is not loss, but restoration, not destruction, but renewal. Easter is the mystery that what exists matters, not for a moment, but forever. For what steps out of the tomb on Easter morning is not just one resurrected individual, but the promise that physical creation is so treasured by the divine that it will not be abandoned or lost. In this sense, Easter is about much more than even life after death. It's not an accident that Jesus makes his first appearance after the resurrection in a garden because Easter is an ecological celebration. For us in the Northern Hemisphere, it's appropriate that Easter starts at the beginning of spring as new life is bursting forth everywhere for it celebrates that God intends the flourishing of life, that the divine is not content to allow death the final word. See, Jesus says, I'm making all things new. 
And this mystery of resurrection is breathtaking in its scope because it challenges us to treasure and honor all of creation and life. If God intends resurrection, then what is, is worthy of love and attention and care. So Easter cultivates in us delight in a king whose ways of peace make for life and who pulls all of creation into life with him, who treasures every last bit of creation. Okay, so this cycle, incarnation, atonement, resurrection, forms half of the church calendar. And the other half is given over to what we call ordinary time. Now, while the name comes from the, norm, the numbers of the week, which are ordinals, uh, ordinary has since become a word that means normal, and that's pretty fitting as well, because while the mysteries of incarnation, atonement, and resurrection all appear as these unexpected high events breaking onto the human scene, ordinary times celebrate something much quieter, much more subtle, and which takes a lifetime to live into. Ordinary time turns our eyes to the mystery of Trinity, it begins with Pentecost Sunday, which is the celebration of God's Spirit coming to dwell in the church. And, and Trinity Sunday is in, is, uh, is in the middle, and it closes with this day, Christ the King Sunday. This long stretch of Sundays in between are traditionally full of saint days. We remember, we remember everyone from Mary and the disciples, Francis and Teresa of Avila, Martin Luther King Jr., and Dorothy Day. This is... To the point, because while Trinity is often presented as a very clear hierarchical doctrine, right? Father, Son, Spirit, in descending order. The church has wrestled for ages on how to best understand this mystery. And today, under the teaching particularly of theologians who are women and people of color, we're reimagining the Trinity not as hierarchy, but as relationship. Not as a vertical line, but as a circle. Not as fixed roles, but as a dance. And what Trinity points to is this. God is love, which means that God is relationship. The divine life is not lonely, but delighted. And the most deeply true reality of existence is not a single point, but a dynamic, moving, giving, and relational energy. Reality is not hierarchical, but sharing and self-giving. Ordinary time moves us into a dance with our king, who truly delights in sharing his power, knowing and being known, who's not out there but is right here, who is love and who dwells in the love of his people. And so we close out the cycle again. Incarnation, atonement, resurrection, trinity. These aren't doctrines or ideas that we hold or grasp. They're mysteries that hold us. We cycle them year by year and let them shift our experience of divinity, our imagination of power, our longing for justice and peace. We never fully understand these mysteries. There's always more to ponder. And so our calendar keeps us near to them, weaving them into our very bones. And as we do, we encounter a new kind of king, not just for us, but for all the world embracing and dwelling among the lowly and the forgotten, inviting all to belong and share their wisdom, merciful, entering our darkness and giving us rest, self-giving to save even enemies, making life to flourish for all creation, sharing power right here, inhabiting our love and lives. What would it look like if our imagination of power and authority looked like that? 
if that's what we saw in our leaders, if we dreamed of that in our spheres of influence, well, that's the invitation of the church year, to learn, to discern, and to desire goodness. Come, Jesus says, learn of me, for my ways are gentle, and they're truly good. During the Reformation, the main players, Catholic, Lutheran, and Reformed alike, all tried to establish their dominance, and it was a really violent and bloody time. One small group, however, related to the Anabaptists, were called the Moravians, and they taught that Jesus was the king who would change the world through self-giving and not violence. They refused weapons and coercive power. Their seal was a lamb standing as though slain, with the words, Our lamb has conquered, let us follow him. The lamb-like, self-giving king has conquered, not through empire, but redemptive love. As we enter this new cycle of the church year, let us follow him. Let's pray. Spirit of truth, move now in ancient words and cluttered hearts, that we might hear your voice and live For we long to be glad servants of your hidden holy reign. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Amen. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.